Well, good morning. How are you guys? I am, uh, I am Pastor Todd, one of the uh, other pastors here, and um, I'm going to move some stuff around so I don't trip up here. Um, we are continuing on in James this morning, so I'd encourage you, grab your Bible, turn to James in the New Testament with me. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the pew in front of you. You can grab one of those, follow along with that. If you don't have a Bible at home, at all, like you don't have one that belongs to you, take that. We would love for you to have God's word with you at home. Kind of hard to grow in it and, and know that if you don't have one. So take that. Would love for that uh, to be yours. Um, so we're in James. This is part five of our James series. Um, we're going to be in chapter two, starting off with verses 14 through 26. And let me be 100% totally honest with you. These are tough words today. They're really tough words today. And I got to be honest with you, um, my natural inclination as a human is to kind of navigate my way towards comfort. And these words are not comfortable. They're just not. They are going to bristle you. They're going to probably piss you off a little bit. Sorry, I tried to work with the filter. Mine's been broken for a while. There's going to be pieces of it that are going to challenge you. But I'm just telling you, this is not going to be one of those messages where you probably walk away just like, this is so encouraging to my soul. But you need these words. I need these words. If our soul ultimately in the end is going to be encouraged and bear fruit. So they're difficult. They're tough words. So before we jump into the text, just reminding you, catching you up. So James has got this hard-packed book, right, of just kind of biblical wisdom matched up with just this is Christian living. This is what we're called to if you're going to call yourself a believer, a disciple, a follower of Christ. And so at the very beginning of James, he tells us who he's writing to. He says, I'm writing to you, the Jews, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So James is Jesus' half-brother, okay? He was a prominent leader in Jerusalem in the church there, and he's writing to the Christians outside of Jerusalem, okay? There's a lot going on in this time. Christianity is not widely accepted, but it is exploding because people are seeing the truth of the gospel and the good news. And so he's writing to them, about, hey, these are some things that you need to know. These are some concepts, God's word, that needs to be a part of the fabric of who you are. And so he's challenging them with some things going on. So um, that's who he's talking to. And the title of our sermon is The Ethical Effect. It's the title of today's sermon. Another pastor came up with that name. Um, I'm not that catchy. Um, but what does that even mean? This section of scripture kind of being the ethical effect that's happening with what James is seeing in the church. And I'll be 100% honest with you, it is happening just as much today as what James was encountering back then. So we can't kind of get this chronological snobbery, right, of thinking, well, that was an old time ago. That's not how things are now. We've progressed beyond that because, you know, we're, we're in the relevant culture. No, we got the same stinking problem going on. 
We do. And what he's basically saying by the ethical effect is he's going, look, I'm challenging you with this, Christians. Some of you, your talk doesn't match your walk. What you say you believe in, what you say your faith is in, doesn't match what you live like. We already turned down the air conditioning, so if it's getting hot in here, we're just going to all have to deal with this funk together, okay? It got real uncomfortable for a second. He was hitting them hard, and he takes this hard-nosed tone with them because their authenticity was in question, and he had to challenge them. There's a reason that he had to challenge them. One, they needed it. Literally, their life depended on it. Their soul depended on these words having this tone. And the other thing is, man, he loved them. He loved them. And there's one thing, and I used to say this all the time teaching, and I say this to my boys all the time. This is a really clear way to know truly how someone thinks about you, feels about you, because if they love you, they're going to tell you some stuff you don't like. They're going to tell you some of that stuff that's going to get all up in your grill work, all right, all up in your space, make you uncomfortable. You're not going to like them a whole lot, but because they love you that much, they're willing to deal with you not liking them because they know ultimately how much they love you and how much you need these words. And James is coming from that standpoint. So with that, I, I give you this warning. We need to not be so soft today. We need the Bible to read us, not us read the Bible. What do I mean by that? Meaning we can't just read the Bible today and make it fit for us how we want it to so we feel all good about ourselves. We need the Bible to read true if we're going to experience some genuine transformation from God's word. So like the 12 tribes of dispersion, uh, they were separated, right? What happens when you're separated from kind of your supports and the things that you know? Um, sin starts to creep in, right? You tend to get challenged. Your supports, like I said, they're not necessarily there. So it's easier to conform to the life that's around you when you've been separated, College for me was definitely the season of life of dispersion, okay? I was separated from uh, some deep-rooted discipleship relationships that had built um, the people that were, if you could really say that God used to kind of be the founding fathers of my belief and my faith that were constantly behind me, kind of pushing me in God's word and pushing me to grow. They weren't there. I was kind of out on my own. And I had just moved from Philadelphia, where I started college, into South Carolina. Man, and I was in a dark, depressive, separated state. I just was. And it was so easy in that time frame, because in that season of life, you're butting up against so many other people's beliefs, so many other things that people are saying, I don't think you're right, I live this way. And you just start to question 
do I really believe that? And so the problem for me was my faith straight up flatlined. If you look at my faith in that moment and and the talk said one thing, because I still said I was a Christian, I still said, look, I love God, I still believe God. And that was absolutely 100% true. But when you started to look at the details of my life, how I was physically living out my life, it didn't match a lot of my talk. Because of all those things. So, what's James say? Let's look at chapter 2, verse 14, and we're going to kind of break this down. I'm gonna, let's go through this in chunks. So we're going to read through 14 to 17. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's hard language. All right, James comes out swinging. All right, we just all took one on the chin there. That didn't feel good. But we got to understand the depth. Those are some hard words, but it it peels back another layer. There's four words that kind of stand out to me as I'm going through that. The first one, he says, look, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith? He's meaning, look, what kind of assurances or belief does someone have if they say they have that? So faith being the belief, the assurances, the trust. They say they have belief, assurance, and trust. If the second word, second word that jumps out, if they don't have any works. What do we mean by that? He's saying if there's no action Work is to act. It's this workmanship, this creation that comes out of or emerges from. He says, so what kind of faith do you have? What kind of trust and assurance do you have if you don't have any action? And then he says, would that that save him? Would that faith, would that trust actually deliver deliver him? In the end, he comes back and he says, no, that faith without any action in it, it's dead. It's lifeless. There is no breath in it. And so he kind of delivers that cheap talk with some example, right? And we kind of read through that, but imagine being the person in the example, right? Imagine being the one, you show up, right? Your car breaks down. You haven't had any food. You're starving. You got your family and your kids with you, right? You're just in a desperate situation. You show up at someone's house, right, that you know, and you know they're a believer. You know they follow Christ. They say they're a disciple, and you go, look, here's what happened. This played out for me. I'm in a bad situation. They're like, oh, that's so bad. That's so bad. 
I hope that it stops raining because it's going to get cold later. So I'm really hoping you get warm. I don't know where you're going to find food, but I hope you get some. Be filled. Um, we got some stuff going on, though, so I'll catch you later. What are, what are you going to think about their faith and their belief? When they say all these things about what they believe and where their trust is, but yet there's no action to it. Now it's getting fun. <laughs> Let's keep reading some more. Look, this, this hit me, like I said, back in college. I was living this out. I was the guy that, I'll be honest with you, had a lot of head knowledge about Scripture, knew a lot about Christianity, called myself Christian, lived not like a Christian in this season of life. I had a series of encounters with people that honestly loved me. And at the time, I had a best friend that was in South Carolina with me, and he's watched all of this firsthand. Now, I've had other people, some of those, those people that had always been a support to me, they knew some funk was going on in my life. They knew there was some flatlining happening. They had called. They had said some really difficult things to me, and I just kind of continued on. And it was that friend that came to me and goes, you know, and he had this similar problem. And we used to talk about this all the time because, man, the South is the Bible Belt, right? I mean, if you're going to run into some Christianity, you're gonna, it's, it's going to hit you in the face in the South, right? And so, but we always had this problem because we always used to say, man, the South is probably one of the most difficult places for evangelism because everybody knows Jesus and a lot of people don't know Jesus. You get what I'm saying? You get what I'm saying? You sure you're getting what I'm saying? I literally had people tell me, no, 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 I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven. Well, how do you know that? Oh, I'm from South Carolina. <laughs> Bro, I'm not seeing South Carolina in here. And I mean, I'm not great with Hebrew or Greek, but I don't think you should be resting on that, man. And so we kind of used to make fun of that and be like, yeah. But then he kind of hit me with something. He goes, you know, what was hard for me growing up in the South? He said, because I looked at Christianity and I looked at what people believe and I looked at what they were saying, but then I looked at how they lived and it just, the equation didn't match. And we always used to talk about that problem of the equation not matching, the cheap talk. And he said, man, I love you, but you got some cheap talk and your equation doesn't match. And I couldn't even get mad because he said it in such a loving, broken-hearted way. So James is saying the same thing. First thing is, is we got a problem here. You guys are saying all these things, but you're not living it. And so he doesn't stop there. He continues on and he hits them with, and he goes, let me explain to you where entry level belief is. Let me, you guys are on this trajectory of entry level belief. And let me break that down, what that looks for. So in verse 18, 
He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Look, he knows that his words are going to be met with opposition. No one wants to hear you got cheap talk flowing out of your mouth. I mean, I don't know about you, but you'd be like, all right, bro, you say something like, it's going. And so he knows he's got some opposition happening there. And so he hits them with this, and he, he tells them this kind of metaphorical example, right? This conversation that they might kind of engage in. And he's saying, look, I know some of you are going to look at me and go, yeah, look, James, I get what you're saying, but James, bro, you do you. You do you, man, the faith and the action. I get all that. But I'm about faith and believing. That's where I rest. That's where I'm securing that. I'm good. I'm from South Carolina. Look, don't get me wrong. I love South Carolina, man. I really do. And honestly, God used that time and a lot of people in that place that were truly authentic, man, to bring me along in that season. So I make fun of it, but at the same time, there are some deeply heartfelt people following the Lord there. So I don't want to knock them too much because I love that place. But he's challenging them. He's challenging them with this. He said, look, you couldn't be more basic. You couldn't be more basic in your belief. You know what level this puts you on? It's the same level as the demons that are in hell. And honestly, at least they shudder. At least they tremble at who God is in recognizing that. You don't. And he highlights this entry-level belief that they're struggling with. And see, because here's the thing. He knows that demons know who God is. They know about the facts of God. But the problem is, is when they encounter that knowledge, there is no transforming power that happens in their life. When it comes to submitting and following God's will, they choose their own over God's. And he said, that's entry-level belief, is when you encounter the knowledge of who God is, and you are unwilling to let the Holy Spirit transform you because of it. Let me hit it with you uh, this way. It's like, it's like knowing that Jesus went to the cross, he died on the cross, he saved you from his sins, but you believe that factual information just like you believe that George Washington was the very first president of the United States. It's something that you know, something that, that you feel some truth in. You can be pretty sure of yourself in that knowledge, but there's no transforming element. And so that's what he's explaining to him. He says, look, you can't separate these two things. You can't just sit here and say you believe something and there's no evidence in your life. He's saying, look, you look at my life and there is faith and belief in the works. The transforming power emerges out of the faith that's there. 
He's saying the works, the things that you do, the way that you act, the way that you live should be in submission to who God is and what he calls you to. And that emerges out of the faith and the trust of what Christ completed for you on the cross. That's where that comes from. And he's telling them, there's a void in your life there. And so he highlights for them this struggle with entry-level belief. And some of you right now, you might be going, well, some of you guys are smart. And I'm not going to lie to you. A large portion of you are way smarter than I am. Okay. I went to Talbot County Public Schools. And then they let me come back and teach here. I'm just joking. Talbot County is pretty awesome. But I know the extent of my own brain and how God's created me. And so some of you are looking and going, well, I know what Paul said. And didn't Paul in Romans say, it's not by works, bro. It's by faith. I think you need to check your theology, Pastor Todd. Because I'm reading through a Romans study right now. Romans 4. And we got to understand here, Paul is dealing with the same problem. He's on the other side of the spectrum. He's speaking to Jews in the traditional sense that are thinking, as long as I go to church, as long as I read my Bible, as long as I follow God's laws, as long as I do this and I do that and I do this and then that, and as long as I follow this order, as long as I check those boxes, I'm a Christian and I am saved. That's what Paul's dealing with. He's going, look, you got all works, bro, but (laughs) there's no faith there. There's no trust. And James is dealing with the same problem. So they're complimenting one another and what they're, they're discussing here because James is hitting it from the other side of the spectrum going, look, you're, you're resting on this whole side of faith and, and belief and there's nothing transforming your life. So took care of that theology problem. So now he gets into, all right, so what's an active faith look like? What does it look like if there's action, if there's works in, in someone's life? And so James, pick up in verse 20 with me. Verse 20 says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Okay, so the tone's staying the same, all right? I wasn't lying to you. This is not going to feel good. You want to be shown, you foolish person? I know, I didn't have to read it again. I did. That faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was filled, fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So the Jews reading this, right? They would have read this and seen Abraham, man, and, and Abraham, he's like, he's the pro-level example. He's the rock star example. Everyone, if you wanted to aspire to something, man, you wanted to be like him, this faith-filled, following after God, I'm not saying it's perfect, but man, they knew him. He was very well known. People wanted to be like him. People had Abraham jerseys, right? <laughs> That's not true. That's weird. Mm -mm. that's not theological or doctrinally sound. 
But see, everyone back then would have respected that. So he puts that in there. He's saying, but look at what happens here. And so he pulls from two different things in the Old Testament that they would have known well in Genesis 15 and in 22. And he says, look, from 15, man, God told him what was going to play out in his life. He said, look, you, you're going to have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky. And I'm going to do a work in your life and transform. And there's going to be some incredible things that happen because I'm going to do the work in your life. And Abraham believed God and he trusted that his word would come true. And you got to understand where it was coming from. God's saying this to Abraham and he didn't have any kids. And on top of that, his wife was barren, so she couldn't have kids. You see the faith that's there? So there was belief, there was trust, there was assurance in God's word and what he said. About 30 years later, we pick up with what James is talking about in Genesis 22. And God asks him, he says, look, I gave you your only son. And you know what I said. You know what I said was going to happen in your life. I need you to go. I need you to sacrifice him. Abraham's like, okay, I'm listening, God. You need me to go. You need to sacrifice my son. What? God, let me read this back to you, what you just said. You want me to sacrifice my only son, but about 30 years ago, you told me that stars in the sky, there's something about my, you know, uh, I don't think that can happen if he's a goner, right? But he believed God, he trusted God, and he was prompted into action. So he and Isaac, they went up the mountain, they told the helpers, you wait over here, man, and, and he was gone. He's like, all right, builds the altar, lays him on the altar, about ready to go through, and God says, stop. Stop. I know that you would do it. I had to make sure that there was going to be some action in your faith. That's my words, okay? Because it said that God tested Abraham. And you might not like that. I don't like that God tests us. But just because you don't like something doesn't mean you don't need something. Because it was even that James said, look, count it all joy when trials come to your life, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. He says it in the first three verses. You are going to be tested in this life, and God's going to be the one to do it because he is going to shape you and mold you so that when it hits the fan, your faith is actually worth something that you actually have a genuine, a genuine assurance to what you believe in. And I need to make sure that your faith is ready when it hits the fan. And he did it in Abraham's life. And see, he said he counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham didn't have anything. He didn't have anything in the spiritual bank God counted it to him. God counted all of that belief and filled up the account. God was the one that transformed his faith into action and is shaping Abraham. 
And so I know what's thinking. And then the Jews are probably thinking back then. They're probably going, I get all that, James. But that's Abraham, man. He's pro-level faith. Man, that's like you know, somebody saying, man, you could do this. You could be a pro in basketball. And you're like, you know, LeBron did it. And you'd be like, dude, he's 6'8". I'm like 5'10". It ain't going to happen, bro. And then I might have been thinking that too. That's Abraham. He's on this level. James, we're down here on this level. So then he pulls out this other example. He said, that's fine. Verse 24, jump in with me there. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So Rahab is this second example, and then nobody arguing about the Rahab example. She comes into this place, and we find he pulls from this story from Joshua 2. And they're spying out the land. And so Joshua sends the spies into Jericho to spy out the land that they're going to overtake. And the king wants to kill them. He said, I know what they're here for. And Rahab takes them in. She hides them. The king comes knocking at her door. Where are they? And at this moment, what she believed gets encountered with, are you going to take action? Because she says in 2, I think it's verse 11, and she's talking to the spies about what they heard about the Jewish people coming in. And he said, she said, when we heard what God was doing, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Our hearts melted. And the spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth below. Rahab proclaims where her belief is. Your God is the one true God. And when her faith in believing that was encountered with the opportunity to take action, she did. The work that was done emerged out of the faith. God counted it to them as righteousness. And when you realize the small amount of information that Rahab had, you really begin to see how marvelous her faith was. So marvelous that when you start to look back at the information and the inheritance that she had coming from her, she married a man. And then from that marriage, they had Boaz, who we're going to read in our next series in Ruth, and the incredible faith an action that that man took in his life. And it carried down the lineage so much so that our Savior, our Savior came from that same bloodline. So James hits him and he leaves him with this. Look, you can't, you can't separate these two things. Just like the spirit, when you take it away from the body, that body is dead and dying. And he said, but look, if you, if you just take faith and it doesn't have action and transformation in it, it's lifeless. It's dead. 
I'm gonna run through a couple of things. I don't wanna leave you without anything, right? I always like practical. I need practical, and there is practical in this. There's some quick ingredients that we see a part of Abraham and a part of Rahab, and I'm gonna encourage you with this assignment. I'm gonna ask you to go read something this week and spend some time in Hebrews 11, which gives us example after example of faithful people that didn't just believe but had action. So there's your reading assignment. But I, I, I hope you see these ingredients of an act of faith. The first thing we see in Abraham, we see it in Rahab. They feared the Lord. They respected and wanted to honor God with their life. Their belief was rooted in trusting because they didn't just believe that he was God and shudder, but they truly feared, honored, and respected God. They were willing to come underneath his authority for their life and follow his will. So the first ingredient was the fact that they feared the Lord. The second thing was that they trusted that. They trusted God, that what he said he was going to do and who he was going to be, he was going to do and he was going to be, that he was going to follow through. And what comes out of that is that action, that transformation that only the Holy Spirit can do because of the good news of the gospel. Because of that, those ingredients interacting, man, they had a closeness with the Lord. That's what he says, James says about Abraham, man, that he was called the Lord's friend. Abraham saw blessing come because he trusted and acted on his faith. Rahab was spared, and her family grew in a heritage that passed on faith from generation to generation. So is there any good news in this? The truth is good news. The truth is that we were created for so much more. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift. It's not a result of works. So here he is. It's not because of what you do. God's going to do the faith. It's not because of the boxes you check. So that none of us in here are ever going to boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his creation. Created in Christ Jesus For what? What does it say? For good works. For action. We were created for transformation, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a whole other message there, but I'm going to sum it up in this. You have got to know that God alone has made a way for relationship with him. And that's what we have to remember as we come to communion, that he has created these works beforehand, and we're going to encounter these testings, these times, these difficulties, and we have this option. Are we going to submit and trust God? Is our faith going to be active in that moment, or are we going to go our way? One way... One way is lifeless. 
and the other is filled with life. So as we come up to communion, it's a time of remembrance. It's a time to remember what Christ did on the cross. It's a time to remember that we have a way to be in relationship with him. It's also this time to do work with the Lord on our relationship. Maybe you need to repent from the cheap talk that's in your life. If so, do it now in this time. Do you need to move on from entry-level belief? Don't leave now without doing that work with the Lord. Is there action lacking in your faith? Go to him now on where he's calling you to walk. And if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, again, don't leave this place without praying to him for the forgiveness of your sins and entering into that journey and the beautiful relationship that leads to life. That's why we have people up here that want to pray with you. Shoot, I'll pray with you. Any disciple or Christian worth their salt wants to pray with you and help you on that journey that leads to life. So hard words this morning, but they are surgical words from James. So as we pray, where is the Lord cutting in your heart right now? That's for you and the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words are weighty words. They are difficult words. But ultimately, as hard as they are, they are and the gut punch that they are, Lord, they are life-giving words. And I pray that our hearts would rejoice at hearing them. Lord, that there would be action that is taken with our, with our relationship with you this morning because of these words, knowing that, God, your word alone transforms. Lord, that your son alone paid the ultimate penalty for all of our sins. And, Lord, that that belief in him, Lord, you love us enough to allow fruit to emerge and grow out of that. Lord, that it would be a blessing to others, give life to us and satisfaction to us, and glory to your name on high. That's my prayer this morning, Father. Lord, increase in us, increase in us as we come to your table, remembering your son. Your son's name, amen.